Please remain standing in honor of the reading of God's Word. We are reading for our New Testament reading the entire book of Philemon one more time. This is God's infallible and inerrant Word. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to you, but how much more to, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May God be honored in the reading of his word. You may be seated. <clears throat> In January of 2017, I visited Providence Baptist Church to preach a sermon on 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We had recently moved from Bur to Birmingham, Alabama, from Madison, Wisconsin, where Providence had supported us in our four-year ministry at Red Village Church. The theme of the sermon on that day was that God uses broken people for His glory. For we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Since I was no longer working in ministry at that time, I thought that that sermon was an ending. But by the grace of God, it was not an ending, but a beginning. We are moving on June 1st, as many of you know, to plant a church near Swanee, Tennessee. God still uses broken people by His grace alone. So this is the final sermon in a series on the book of Philemon. It's a beautiful letter. We have seen in it what God did in Onesimus' life. Onesimus ran away from his owner Philemon. He heard the gospel through Paul. He was transformed by God's grace. And now he is going back to reconcile with Philemon. 
through the letter, we've noticed how the gospel of the grace of God transforms everything from our relationships, how we encourage one another, and partnerships in the gospel. We've also seen how the death of Jesus reconciles us to God so that now the point of our lives is to display that reconciliation, the death and resurrection of Christ in our own lives, in every relationship, from school to our relationships to marriage to career and to retirement. So as we wrap up this series on gospel transformation, I have one question for us. Is the gospel transforming us? The gospel of the grace of God is transformative by nature. It dramatically changes individuals, families, neighborhoods, institutions, entire people groups, every nation, tribe, and tongue. The gospel does not make good people. The gospel raises the dead. And so if we are not changing as a body of believers, the problem is not with the gospel. So, it is a critically important question that we are considering today. Is the gospel transforming us at Providence Baptist Church? God has perfectly timed this message by what we've been learning in the parables of Jesus in Matthew 13. So, before we go any further, I am very much aware of my inability uh, to preach this message on my own. So, I'd ask that you pray with me, that God would give us all grace to be transformed even this morning. So, Father, we just thank you for your grace, the grace that you've showed us through Christ. And, Lord, we pray you would pour out your grace on us this morning and continue to transform us into his image. We pray in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. So today we are going to zero in on this concept of grace. We'll notice in the last verse of the letter, Paul says this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So the word grace in the New Testament really gets at the heart of the gospel, doesn't it? So let's consider first, what is grace? So the word in the New Testament is charis. It's a rich word, has many layers of meaning from its many usages in the New Testament. Today we're going to focus on two of those usages. The first definition we'll consider for grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's a free gift from God. And the second definition is that grace is God's power for the believer to change. So grace is God's unmerited favor, and grace is God's power to change. The two are certainly connected. We will look at both in turn. We'll see them in Philemon, other places, New Testament, and all of this will help lead us to the question is, are we being changed by the gospel? So first, let's consider this, the foundational concept of grace as God's unmerited favor. And I say it's foundational because of what we learn in the gospel. In order for sinful humans to be able to stand before a holy God, we must have grace, undeserved kindness and favor. God is holy. We are sinners. We are justly condemned before a holy God. Christ Jesus is our only hope. He suffered wrath on our, in our place. He rose again, offering salvation to everyone who believes in him. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's grace is everything to the believer. 
we see this theme throughout Paul's letter to Philemon from the opening verses which state grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To the final words, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit and everything in between. Grace, the grace of God reigns in this letter. So taking a broader look throughout the New Testament, we see God's grace is foundational and decisive in every aspect of our salvation. According to Ephesians 1, our election and our adoption come from God's grace. Ephesians 2 tells us that even our regeneration is a gift of God's grace. According to Romans 8, the believer's justification and glorification all derive from the grace of God. And in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, we learn that even our growth as a Christian is initiated and sustained by the grace of God. For it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So salvation belongs to the Lord. Even more than our salvation, every breath that you breathe, every good and perfect gift you have comes from the endless bounty of God's undeserved kindness towards you. What do you have that you did not receive? You deserve nothing but wrath. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, you've been given everything, even a kingdom to reign. We see this beautiful picture of grace as God's unmerited favor in the life of King David and his kindness toward Mephibosheth. You remember that story? 2 Samuel chapter 9. After many trials at the hands of King Saul, David inherited the kingdom, just as God had promised through the prophet Samuel. In response to God's gracious promises in 2 Samuel 7, David desires to show the kindness of God to the house of Saul for the sake of his deceased friend, Saul's son, Jonathan. He says, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. As a grandson of a displaced king, his life was in danger. You can imagine people still loyal to Saul may have wanted to put Saul, uh, Mephibosheth on the throne. More than that, his grandfather had repeatedly tried to murder David. And at no fault of his own, Mephibosheth was crippled, lame in his feet at a very young age. He certainly is a picture of, of hopelessness. Presented before the king, Mephibosheth knows this and said, why would you show kindness to a dead dog such as I? And this is what David says to him. David said, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table forever. David desired to show him the kindness of God. Isn't grace beautiful? Brothers and sisters, we can glory in this truth of God's unmerited favor, that we are no longer dead dogs before a holy God. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of God, and we now sit at God's table all by grace. So we've seen that God's grace is his unmerited favor towards sinners. And now let's move on to our second definition of grace, which is the power, God's power in us to change us. This is where we will find some help in answering the question, are we, is grace changing us here at our church? So in order to consider this concept, let's spend some time in Colossians 3, actually. Please turn there with me to Colossians chapter 3. In your pew Bible, it's page 984. 
So you may remember that uh, Philemon and his family lived in Colossae, and they were part of the church at Colossae. So these letters were delivered hand in hand. We should study them together. The book of Colossians is about the preeminence of Christ. Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is enough. As Paul states in the beautiful hymn to Christ, all things were created through him and for him. There had been false teaching creeping into the Colossian church, and Paul wants the believers there to know the Christian life is not about don't do this, don't touch that, don't eat that, but the Christian life is about being transformed in a covenant relationship with Jesus. So let's take a look first at Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Instead of observing man-made rules, Paul says to the Colossians, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are of earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. These verses serve as one of the many hinges found in Paul's teaching. He is hinging between the indicative of what God has done for us to the imperative of what he's calling us to do, from his unmerited favor towards us to his power to change in us. These, these teachings are everywhere throughout Paul's writings. And in these verses, he beautifully points to the center pin of the hinge, the doctrine of the believer's union with Christ. Charles Spurgeon once says, there is no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. Union with Christ. Let's linger here just for a little while, brothers and sisters. We see hints of this foreshadowed in Old Testament prophecies of the new covenant. In Hosea, as we read earlier, this new covenant relationship that God promises is the most intimate of relationships, a marriage. Hosea's unfaithful wife, Gomer, represents unfaithful Israel, who prostitutes herself to every false god under the sun. In the face of spiritual adultery in the hearts of his people, God promises that one day, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord." The bride price, the payment God required for marriage to his people is perfect righteousness and justice and steadfast love. That price was too steep for Israel to pay. What about us? What even we cannot pay, God did. The righteousness and justice and steadfast love of God met together perfectly as Jesus hung dying on the cross in the place of spiritual adulterers like you and like me. His last breath was, it is finished. Our sin debt paid in full. Three days later, as he promised, our Lord Jesus triumphed over death by his resurrection. And in our union with the risen Christ, God connects us to Jesus eternally in an unbreakable bond. Are there any children here this morning? I see a few. I need your help, guys. Can you help us learn something? 
Does anyone like the Jesus Storybook Bible? Maybe even some parents know that one as well. The Jesus Storybook Bible. So we learn something about God's love. There's a repetition in that Bible. Do you guys remember it? What does the Bible keep saying about God's love? God has loved his people with a, say it with me, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Good job. All right. I saw you doing it there. This is God's love for us. It's never stopping, never giving up. It's always an unbreaking. We've been united to Christ by faith. So I want to define union with Christ broadly as a relationship between Jesus and his people. Pastor John Piper defines it even more specifically, saying it is the reality of all the ways the Bible pictures our human connectedness to Christ, in which he is indispensable for every good we enjoy. Do you hear that? Every good we enjoy is because we are connected to Jesus by faith. Every spiritual privilege we have is ours based on this union. So Paul is saying here in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, if you have come to Christ by faith, everything Jesus has accomplished is yours. His love from the Father is yours. His righteous standing before God is yours. His atoning death is yours. His glorious resurrection is yours. His spirit is yours. If you trust him, Jesus is yours. This is our glorious union with Christ. But it is an already and a not yet. Verse 3 says this in Colossians 3. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our real life, brothers and sisters, our spiritual life is hidden. We don't fully have it right now. It is not yet revealed. It's kind of like being engaged. The promise is there. It does give you joy, but there's also waiting. If it is true, Paul says in Colossians 3, we should not focus our minds on earthly things. He says, seek the things that are above. He goes on to say, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. On the night before her wedding, does a young woman set her mind on her singleness? No, she sets her mind on her imminent marriage. On the great day, dressed in pure white, does the bride miss the wedding because she cannot stop looking at herself in the mirror? No, she longingly gazes toward her beloved. So it should be with us, brothers and sisters. We are the bride of Christ. Set our minds on the things that are above with Christ. In Colossians 3, he says this amazing phrase, when Christ who is your life appears, you will also appear with him in glory. What does this mean? Christ who is your life. I think we will mine that treasure forever. But for today, I want us to consider two ways that Jesus is our life. For the believer, he's our sustenance and he's our solace. These are hard days for our church family. Perhaps you are wondering how you're going to make it through today. Jesus is the sustaining force. He will sustain you every single day. 
Christ, who is your life, will carry you. Colossians 1 says that in him all things hold together. You, dear believer, are in Christ. So that includes you. He will hold you together. He is upholding your broken heart right now. You may not feel this reality. If you're in Christ, it is true. He is holding you. He will always sustain you because your union with Christ is absolutely unbreaking, no matter what happens. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus is our sustainer day in and day out. But Jesus is also our solace, our comfort. So come weary and broken child of God. Come and tell your sorrows to the man of sorrows. He is acquainted with grief, even your grief. He is gentle and lowly in heart, so tell him all your heart. Cry to him, lament to him in the Psalms. Pour out your heart before him. Jesus is our refuge. At Jesse's graveside, a couple days ago, Blair said that the sting of death is the separation. What a terrible consequence of sin in this life, separation from those we love. If death is separation and sadness, union with Christ is our comfort and our joy. And part of that comfort in union with Christ is reunion with those that we've lost in Christ. So cry to Jesus, lift up your eyes, and see a great wonder that Jesus cries with you. So this is the grace of our God, united to Christ by faith. Have you experienced this life-altering grace of God? You can come to Jesus now and have him. He invites you right now through this message. You can come and receive this unbreakable union with Christ, all the comfort, all the joy, all the life that there is, is in him. You can turn from self-reliance, forsake the idols of your heart, submit yourself unto him, and rest secure in his arms. Before we move on to see how this grace changes us, I want us to think about a point of application with thinking about how to receive the strength and the comfort of union with Christ. This is our first point of application. I'm going to have two more at the end of the sermon, um, but I think this is the most important. So how can we bask in the glories of union with Christ? Daily lay hold of them by faith. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So all of these realities of our union with Christ, we can apply them daily by faith. You receive them. How beautiful is this? We grow in our faith by meditating on God's word. So here's what I encourage you to do. Get a concordance or um, do a search in your Bible app or on, on your computer and type in the words, in Christ, 
and, uh, and also the phrase, in him, and also in whom. Those phrases, we've seen those a lot in the New Testament, right? They're everywhere. There are hundreds of those phrases in the New Testament. So collect a few dozen of them, or maybe collect all of them. Put them in your journal, and daily meditate on a new one. What you have in Christ, you will see, you will begin to lay hold and to begin to take comfort and begin to have increasing joy. As Spurgeon said, you will be blessed in the true sense of the word, happy in God. So I believe, again, this is the most important application from today. If we, as Christians, don't meditate on our union with Christ, it's like we have a winning lottery ticket and it's just forgotten in our pocket. We never turn it in. So let's appropriate what Christ has done for us by meditating on our union with Christ. So dear ones, love the doctrine of the union with Christ. It is such a comfort. It's the source of all joy. It raises us up into the heavenly places. But Paul does a weird thing in verse 5 of Colossians. He's taken us up into heaven with Christ, and then he brings us right back down to earth into the mundane. He's about to say things like, don't be angry with your kids, and be meek, and sing songs to one another. Can't we just stay up in those heavenly realms? Why does he bring us right back to earth? Well, I think the reason he does is because heavenly realities transform our earthly life. One day, heaven will come down, but in the meantime, the Christian life is a daily battle to remember who you are in Christ and to live out that new identity in the normalcy of the boring everyday. Paul uses a familiar formula here in Colossians 3, 5 through 11, and then 12 through 17. We're going to look at those briefly. The formula of put off and put on. You guys have seen that, right? So first, he's telling believers to put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Christ is all and in all. So for today's purposes, we're not going to focus on every single sin listed in this list. But I want us to think about what is the underlying problem behind all of them. I believe it's selfishness. Sexual morality seeks to feel good beyond God's good bounds for sexuality. Covetousness idolizes what someone else is or what someone else has, thinking that you have to have it in order to be satisfied. Lying seeks to gain personal advantage by bending the truth. So brothers and sisters in Christ... This is not who you are anymore. These things are dead. If you are in Christ, these selfish desires have been crucified with Christ, and you can put them all away, just like old, tattered clothes. Why would you want to wear those anymore? You want to put them away. You are not under law, but under grace. 
Jesus died and rose again, purchasing a new life, a new home, a new joy in him. So the question is, what is the general pattern of your life? Are you no longer living for yourself, but living for Jesus and living for others? Daily put these selfish desires away. Turn from them every day when they come up. They will come up daily. Turn from them, confess them, and by the grace of the Lord Jesus, put them away. Don't walk in them anymore. Selfishness is really not what you want anymore. It's it's not who you are anymore. We have something better in Christ. So God doesn't tell us just to put something off, but he commands us in the power of his grace to put on something like a beautiful white garment. Look at verses 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Just as we daily put on our clothes, as believers, we remember the Lord's grace daily. This grace that rescued us from our sin, that gave us an eternal home in heaven. This grace that has given us every single thing we have in our life. And we put on these heart attitudes described in verses 12 through 17 with the grace that empowers us to change. God pours his grace on us, it grabs hold of us, and it changes us. Even in these verses, we see the grace that God has already given to us. We are chosen, we are holy, we are beloved in Christ. We are to be kind because God showed us the greatest kindness in sending Christ to die for us. We are to be humble and meek because we know Apart from Christ, we are nothing. All boasting is excluded, and we forgive, dear ones, because God in Christ forgave us. If the old life is characterized by selfishness, the new life is characterized by love. The love of Christ fills us, and it's meant to flow out of us to each other. This is ours by faith in Christ. So Paul commands in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So by faith, let this thought rule your heart. You have peace with God through Christ. By faith, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and you will be thankful, and you will admonish others, and you will find yourself singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. By faith, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. From this union with Christ, this unmerited favor, giving to transform us, let us draw two final applications. First, join this body of believers and begin serving the Lord with the gifts that he has given you. In our union with Christ, life flows to us like a vine giving nourishment to branches. And we are meant for that life to flow through us to other people as in the church. 
our, in our church covenant says we engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to aid one another in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy and speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. United to Christ, we unite together. Brothers and sisters, come all in into this body of believers for the glory of God and for your growth and for our growth in grace. But don't just join, serve. Don't just serve, love one another just as Christ has loved you. So our final point of application takes us back to Philemon. Let's go back to Philemon. We should probably spend a little time there, right? Since it's a sermon on Philemon. So turn back to Philemon. Our final point of application. We see something truly amazing here. Something very convicting to me. So look at verse 8 of Philemon. This is back on, let's see, 1,000 in your pew Bible. Verse 8, Paul says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I appeal to you. And later he says in verse 14, I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. Are you trying to control anything? in your life? What are you trying to control? Whatever it is, you probably care very deeply about it. Might be your friends, might be your relationships, your career, your family, your children, a ministry. Trying to control is exhausting. But I have good news. You don't have to control anything. Actually, you can't. <laughs> there is only one sovereign, the Lord Jesus Christ. He reigns by his word. His grace reigns. So we can trust him with all of these things in our lives that we want so badly to control. We can trust fully in the gospel of his grace. We can trust in his goodness. We certainly want to be faithful to sow the seed of his word, to share the grace of God, to live it out in our lives, and then step back and let God work in your children, in your marriage, in your evangelism. Surrendering control, we are free to love. And God alone receives the glory. So Providence Baptist Church, the grace of God is among us. The gospel is changing us. His grace is completely undeserved. It's freely given to us in Christ. Bask in it. Bask in the smiles of God. Receive them by faith, moment by moment by moment. May he pour out his grace more and more on us as we glory on our union with Christ, our husband, our head, our savior, our joy. And may his grace cause us to say from our hearts that we would join the bride as she longs for her groom's return. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen.